Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, our 2017 opening night was opening night of the year according to Metro Magazine, in no small part thanks to Rod Oram's evocative journey into the past, present and future of Tamaki Makoto as our Sir Graham Douglas orator. How silent and peaceful were Watotama's lovely sloping shore. The open country stretched away in vast fields of fern, and nature reigned supreme. We followed a native path, skirting closely when, halfway, a volcanic hill, on summit of which grew one solitary and stately tree. We christened it One Tree Hill, then and there, and to this day it bears that name. We now gently descended towards the shore of a magnificent sheet of water, the harbour of Tumanaco, and away on the west coast range we could see the headlands and a peep of the open sea.
on that night now 40 years ago, a large Pakiha population, five all told, slept on the Watatamaa's shore for the first time. Of Maoris, I know not how many, but a large number. And after the passing away of 40 more years, who can tell how many Pakihas shall sleep on these shores? But will there then be Maoris in number five, all told? He is enclosed within a limited area, with a seaboard penetrated by innumerable harbors, with a fertile soil and a climate the most genial the world knows, and by its speedy occupation he will be crowded out. For this land of which I write is destined to be the happy pleasure ground of all the great south lands of the Pacific. Kena mana fanua o tamaki makoro, tena koto, tena koto, tena koto kotoa, namai pikimai, hairimai. Tolofa lafa, malo alele, bula vinaka, kiorana, malo ni, namaste, nihao, hello. On this night, of all nights, on the bicentenary of tamaki makoro, the words of John Logan Campbell echo down through our time tunnel of the centuries to haunt us and to taunt us. How silent and peaceful were Waitomata's lovely sloping shores. The open country stretched away in vast fields of fern and nature reigned supreme. On the shores of the wonderful isthmus which we had walked that day, a future great town must one day rise. Who can tell how many Pakehas shall sleep on these shores, but will then be Maoris in number, five or told? Why did we destroy so much of the beauty of this place, destroy its very life and spirit? What then brought us to our senses? How did we get from there to here? And here to the restoration of life and spirit that we revel in today, but may not be worthy of. Best I begin at the beginning. On Thursday, April the 30th, 1840. That day, 200 years ago, four months and 18 days, was the first day that John Logan Campbell spent on the shores of this isthmus. He and his three Scottish companions, vigorous men, swooned at the beauty of it. They were canny too. One particular feature caught their fancy, the Remawera ridgeline. Determined to buy some, they sought out Nati Fatua's leaders. Discovering they were not at home at Oraki, but rather fishing in the Manako Harbour, and they set off across the isthmus. They found Kaufau, a Nati Fatua chief, shark fishing at Mangari. Hearing their Remawera inquiry, he retorted, no, those are my people's 
best planting grounds. We aren't selling any of it. Yet he was welcoming to these newcomers. He suggested perhaps, well, his iwi might sell them some less valuable land further up the harbour. The four Scots agreed to look later and set off back across the isthmus to their camp at Oraki Bay, as we have now restored its name from that dreadful colonial name of Hobson's Bay. That evening, though a dark premonition disturbed Campbell's reverie, he foresaw that Maori would be enclosed within a limited area and that speedy occupation would crowd them out. Quick as a flash, the Europeans descended on this paradise with and yet with extraordinary generosity, Nati Fato offered them a 3,000-acre arc of waterfront land, which is the heart of our city today. On Friday, September the 18th, 1840, 200 years ago today, Governor Hobson planted the Union Jack on the beach in the lee of the Pakeha-named Britomart Point and declared this place Auckland. Three years later, in May 1844, the collective Waikato Iwis organized one of the largest Maori feasts ever held in Aotearoa to impress the new arrivals with the fecundity of the Waitatama and its shores. It took place between Mount Hobson and Mount St. John in a narrow plain along which today runs Great South Road. It attracted, populated by car yards, I would hasten to add, um, it attracted some 4,000 Māori and most of the then few Pākehā residents. The festivities lasted for a week and large amounts of food and drinks were consumed. 11,000 baskets of potatoes, 9,000 sharks, 100 pigs and large amounts of tea, tobacco and sugar. Governor Fitzroy visited the festivities on May the 11th when a haka was performed by 1,600 Māori armed with guns and tomahawks. Yet, just 15 years later, Ferdinand von Hochstetter visited New Zealand to map its geology. This is how he later described what he saw in Tamaki Makoro. For the sake of a few serviceable trunks, sometimes whole forests are burnt down and desolated. The woods are ransacked and ravaged with fire and sword. During my stay in Auckland, I was able to observe from my windows during an entire fortnight dense clouds of smoke whirling up which arose from the enormous destructive conflagration of the woods nearest to town. When the fire had subsided, a large, beautiful tract of forest lay there in ashes. The new pet newspapers giving only this laconic notice. No damage done to timberwood. That may be, but there will come a time when the question will not be about the timber, but also about the forest. One of those newspapers, the Southern Cross, was owned by Campbell and his business partner, uh, William Brown. In it, they advertised their auctions of goods that they imported. Their profit on British woven woolen blankets, for example, ranged from 25% to 75% in 
even after all that trouble of bringing them all the way from Britain. Anyway, some of their customers had some money to spend because they were Maori, who um, Campbell and Brown paid to collect cowrie gum. Now, while Campbell was certainly ahead of his time in the market for cowrie gum, he failed to make money over several decades of trying from exporting cowrie masts to the British Royal Navy, prefabricated cowrie homes to San Francisco, and even produce from his large-scale farm near Fakatani. Instead, Campbell made his money on trading land, brewing beer, and importing consumer goods, while benefiting from heavy government spending in the new province. Now, if that sounds like, to you, like Auckland until recent decades, you're right. For the first 180 years after the Treaty of Waitangi, this city, this country, had a simple economic strategy, rip, shit, and bust. Hey, no problem. If I trash this bit of land or that stretch of water, I'll move on to another. Our exploitation here and around the country, and in common with people across the planet, peaked in the first two decades of this 21st century. From 2000 to 2020, we inflicted on ourselves extremes of wealth, inequality, and environmental desecration. We humans were threatening our very existence, even here. Some 30 years ago now, it was that Charles Landry, a world-leading writer on creating cities, visited Auckland to see how we stacked up. In his words, at best, good city-making leads to the highest achievements of human culture. A cursory glance at the globe reveals the names of cities, old and new. Their names resonate as we think simultaneously of their physical presence, their activities, their cultures, their people, and their ideas. Our best cities are the most elaborate and sophisticated artifacts humans have conceived, shaped, and made. The worst are forgettable, damaging, destructive, even hellish. Well, when Landry visited, we weren't quite hellish. He was impressed by our city's natural setting on these two harbours, and thanks to the creation of Auckland Council, three harbours when we snaffled part of the lower Kuiper. Um, but he was disturbed by what we were doing to it. He posted unflattering pictures of us on his website. His favourite? The central police station on the corner of Merrill Drive and Hobson Street. His epithet? Early 1970s, East European. <laughs> Those were very troubling times. I won't dwell on the excruciating details. They are as fresh in my mind, and I would venture yours, as if it was now. We had yet to learn, to borrow from Kurnow, there are no more islands to be found. Or pleasant planets, for that matter. What brought us to our senses? How did we get from there? To hear. Over the past few months, I've wrestled with those questions, hoping to do justice to this oration. 
This morning I was sitting at home staring glumly at my pages of earnest analysis of ecosystems and planetary boundaries, economics, politics, sociology and psychology and the like. Thankfully though, I was soon relieved of my misery. This being Tamaki Mokoro's bicentenary birthday, my wife and I, our daughter and her partner, and their kids strolled eagerly down to Okahu Bay, our place of repose and reflection. We, of course, stepped around the debris from last night's violent storm. Heavens, that was a doozy, wasn't it? Well, we were eager to see how our regenerating bay had coped with the king tide, pushed high by that howling northeaster, the tail end which, as we now know, was one of the worst cyclones yet in the Pacific. Some decades back, Natifata, the guardians of the bay, began restoring it. They had lobbied the council to strip out the sewer pipe under Tamaki Drive that had cut off the beautiful natural beach from the free-draining land behind. As a result of Tamaki Drive and that sewer pipe, uh, we had managed to comprehensively stuff up beach and land. Now, though, we all enjoy clear water, verdant seagrasses, and rich shellfish beds. Yup, oh, the beach survived, protected from that storm, um, protecting from the storm that domain behind us and its luxuriant native plants and their chortling chorus of native birds. Sad we can't bring back the huia. All the walker tents, stands, and other paraphernalia of a party were still standing, if a little dishevelled. And so much to celebrate. Out in um, Tikapa Moana, there's Kai Moana plenty in the clean, healthy waters. On shore, Tamaki Makoro is one of the most delightful, sustainable cities in the world. Even Landry would have approved, even though these days, almost two and a half million of us call it home. Here's a quote. The city is a fact of nature, like a cave, or a run of mackerel, or an antheap but is also a conscious work of art and holds within its communal framework many simpler and more personal forms of art. Mind takes form in the city and in turn urban form conditions mind. So wrote Lewis Mumford, the US social philosopher, way back 110 years ago in 1930. Above all, We've started to bring nature back into our city. Oh, not just in nice plantings, that's ridiculous. Our goals are to make the city largely self-sufficient for energy, food, and some other resources. To be an enlivening, inspiring place to live and work. And above all, to restore our relationship with the ecosystem. There's plenty more to celebrate all around Aotearoa though we aren't quite 100% predator-free in time for um, uh, that 20, in, just in time for the bicentenary, but we will soon, perhaps even a few years ahead of that original target of 2050. This morning, as I gazed around at the gorgeous regeneration of our bay, our tiny bit of paradise, my eyes dwelt on the far end, under Bastion Point and the Oraki Marae, My eyes teared up, and I didn't know why. 
Then it all flashed before me. It's a summer's day back in 2020. We're down at the beach. A mutt of a dog, clenching a dead snapper in its mouth, runs out of the surf and up the beach towards a small child. The dog staggers, drops the fish, falls and writhes on the ground. The child, no more than three or four, I reckon, a girl rushes towards it, drops to the ground, cuddles the dog in her chubby little arms. The dog, slobbering, frantically licks her neck, her cheek, her mouth, then with one last awful spasm, dies. The child howls. The mother pulls her away from the dog. She brings her child up the beach and they sit down near us. Nestled in her mother's lap, the girl quietens and seems to fall asleep. Perhaps 15, 20 minutes pass, then the girl jerks awake, her little body convulsing. We call an ambulance. Before it arrives, she dies in her mother's arms. News of the tragedy spreads like lightning. First, the city is astonished. Then it's stunned as news breaks of more deaths of people on local beaches. The nation is shocked. The news whips around the world. What the hell's happening? Well, it didn't take marine ecologists long to work it out. Curious things had been happening over the previous week. A much-depleted snapper catch, recreational fishers reported. Big areas of eutrophication out in the Gulf, an unheard-of event in such strong tidal waters. Then, in the past days, dead fish washing up on beaches. It turned out that we were the triggers. A few weeks before... A massive storm had knocked out the city's electricity grid. Before an orderly shutdown of the Mangari treatment plant and sewage network was achieved, some, uh, um, some backup generators failed, and then vast quantities of sewage poured into the Waitatamata harbour. We had so abused the ecosystem of the Gulf, its resilience was so depleted, that this very human change, chain of events caused the gulf's web of life to collapse. An intense, species-jumping, deadly toxin new to science was wreaking havoc. The fish, the dog, and the girl were just three of its thousands of victims. The government faffed around for months with an inquiry, trying its hardest not to apportion blame, not to disturb the settled order. More and more citizens grew angrier and angrier. They realised that dangers that had seemed so far away, big storms, rising seas, environmental degradation, climate change, toxic pollution, were suddenly here. They wanted action now. The coalition government fell apart. The snap general election was indecisive. Soon, a broad coalition was formed. Its first act was to amend our Bill of Rights to include the right to a healthy environment. About time. Some 100, 180 countries had already elevated the environment to their constitution or Bill of Rights in the decades before we had stirred our stumps. Two weeks later, all parties in Parliament voted for a Climate Change Act. 
this put in the hands of an independent committee of parliament the power to set carbon reduction targets and to review government policies and progress towards achieving them. About bloody time too. The UK had pioneered that in 2008. By the time we followed them in 2020, some 30 other countries had got there before us. Then we got down to the hard work of getting serious about the ecosystem. As so often happens, we realized pioneers here in Aotearoa had been blazing the trail long before tragedy struck us in 2020. The Land and Water Forum, using collaboration between farmers, recreational users, all stakeholders, to deliver holistic solutions on water quality to the government of the day, and they did. But the government didn't have the sense to implement them. Sea change for Tikapa Moana, or the Hauraki Gulf as we called it then, was another collaborative process culminating in 2016. This time, it was a first in the world to bring terrestrial and marine ecosystems into the same spatial planning process in order to lay out a map for regenerating the Gulf. But the many local governments and central government with a say in the Gulf and all their conflicting agendas completely dropped the ball. It had sunk without a trace by the middle of 2017. The granting of personhood to the Turaweras and the Fonganui River, not to mention other collaborative arrangements such as with the Waikato River, those too were extraordinary. Those were world-leading. To give personhood to a river? But too many people ridiculed those groundbreaking relationships. Back in the late 2010s, as I remember, the government had foisted on us a compromised freshwater management regime. It did have one good feature, though. It gave communities the responsibility of trying to set water quality standards that they wanted. And of course, though, thanks to the exponential shift in technology, our scientific knowledge, knowledge was expanding fast, as were the tools we use in such such as artificial, these days, such as artificial intelligence drones monitoring intensely the health of our ecosystem. But it's not all about the technology. These new ways of working enabled citizen science around the country, such as lots of people checking water quality and soil fecundity in tens of thousands of places and giving us powerful, easy ways for people to collaborate, even at vast distances, to debate and decide how we will help our ecosystem regenerate. And the predator-free campaign fired up peoples in towns and in the country to get involved, to start understanding and appreciating our symbiotic relationship with the ecosystem and to do something about it. We began work on all these things relying on the pockets of good practice in the RMA's swamp of compromise, where we kept arguing about how we might drain that swamp. We were still stuck, I think, because we thought we could use all these new devices, science, tools, collaboration, to make rip, shit, and bust sustainable. But I realized later we were still trying to perfect the wrong thing. We thought we could get so sophisticated at resource management, 
We could manipulate the ecosystem. We could tell it what to do. It was only when we realized that our new capability, our sustainable values, and our common causes were at last helping us with our real task, to hear what the ecosystem was telling us what to do, so it and we could thrive. When we realized that we had to be a humble part of the vastly complex web of life, which is our life support system, things changed. When we realized what Kaitiakitanga meant, that we are just a small, dependent part of our ecosystem. With that insight, we pushed for transformation. People wanted to take responsibility for themselves and their actions and for society. People wanted to seek connection with nature, which they sort of suspected was somewhere deep in their souls. Today, I marvel at how richly our ecosystem has begun to recover, but it is evolution of the ecosystem. We can never recreate the ecosystem Maori knew before Pākehā arrived. We cannot bring back the huia. Instead, naturally, the ecosystem and the myriad forms of life it supports are adapting to their changed circumstances. We're going somewhere different, but this time it's healthy. All we've done, <laughs> all, is to stop trying to bend nature to our will. In return, nature is giving us the greatest gift of all, life itself. And John Logan Campbell, yes, he too evolved. In the last three decades of his 94 and a bit year life, he achieved a deep communion with this land and water and air and light. He became a creature of it, responding ever more deeply to it. He didn't live to see the renaissance of Māori and the sense of kaitiakatanga they had given us all. But I know he knows. 25 years ago in, 20, in 2015, I read a book that shook me to my core. Here's a quote. The greatest challenge we face is a philosophical one, understanding that this civilization is already dead. The sooner we confront our situation and realize that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves the sooner we can get down to the difficult task of adapting with mortal humility to the new reality. For a long time, I didn't understand that quote until the day a dog licked a child and changed the world. But we have barely begun. We still teeter on the edge of ecological apocalypse.
But now there are no more islands to be found, and the eye scans risky horizons of its own in unsettled weather, and murmurs of the drowned haunt their familiar beaches. Who navigates us towards what unknown, but not improbable, provinces? Who reaches a future down for us from the high shelf of spiritual daring? Not those speeches pinning on the past like a decoration for merit that congratulates itself. Oh, not the self-important celebration or most painstaking history can release the current of a discoverer's elation and silence the voices saying, here is the world's end where wonders cease. Only by a more faithful memory, laying on him the half-light of a diffident glory, the sailor lives and stands beside us, paying out into our time's wave the stain of blood that writes an island story. This has been an archival recording from the Going West Writers' Festival. Thanks for listening.